Acts chapter 3. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. So you can find our passage if you're using the Red Pew Bible on page 911. So Acts 3, starting in verse 11. Well, on May 16, 1960, a scientist by the name of Theodore Maimon successfully fired the world's first laser. Light is a powerful force, and with the creation of the laser, Maimon was able to concentrate that force into a very small area, opening the door to all sorts of inventions and conveniences that we rely on and even take for granted on a daily basis. Lasers are used in everything from printers to medical equipment, rangefinders to guidance systems. Uh, they can even be used to mark uh, or to even uh, cut material. Where you find a laser, though, you'll probably also find a mirror. Mirrors reflect light, and so they're useful for directing the light from a laser where you actually want it to go. Now, the mirror itself has no power to emit that light. It simply reflects it. So you might say that the glory of a laser belongs to the power source that's actually producing that laser itself. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells his disciples, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This light that Jesus speaks of is not something that we produce in and of ourselves. It is something which God produces in us. It's something that comes about because of the way that we are linked by faith to Jesus. It comes as the Holy Spirit abides in God's people. Notice that Jesus, even as he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world, also says that the reason we are to let that light shine before others is so that they may see the work and the power of God and give him glory. You might say that as God's people, we function like mirrors reflecting the radiance of the glory of God in such a way that others might see it and glorify Him. He is the source. We, linked to Jesus by faith, merely reflect the radiance of His life-giving light onto others as He works through us. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at how we do that. If you remember, uh, we are in the book of Acts. We've, been, we're, we've started this series at the beginning of the year, and we so last week we were looking at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, looking at this, power, this powerful display of the glory of Jesus as Peter healed a man who had been lame from birth in his name. This act made a huge impact on people. They were amazed by what they saw. He was a man who had never known what it was to take a step. Day in and day out, he had lain at the temple gate asking for alms. And now, here he was, walking around on his own power in the temple itself, leaping about and praising God for all that he had done for him. This was an amazing miracle 
that we'd expect to, something we'd really expect to read about in the Gospels as something that Jesus did in his ministry. In fact, I think we're actually intended to make that connection because, as I said when we first began this book, the book of Acts really is volume two of Jesus' kingdom work. If the Gospels intend to tell us about how Jesus established his kingdom through his cross and resurrection, then the book of Acts records Jesus' work of kingdom expansion. This book is really not about the apostles. It's about Jesus. All the glory goes to him. Well, that main idea, that main idea of this book is particularly clear in our passage today. God used Peter and John in a powerful way to exalt the name of Jesus through the healing of this man. But as we'll see as we get into Peter's sermon, what he said in the aftermath of this, the point of this mighty work was not to exalt Peter or John. It was not to mark them as particularly holy men. But rather, it was to show that Jesus is the Christ. That he is reigning and ruling as the exalted king. And that by believing in his name, we too may share in his life, having been redeemed and set free from our sin. So with that said, let's actually get into our passage together. If you would, please stand once again for the reading of God's word as I read from Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. While he, that is the lame man, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel! Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, as Peter opened his mouth to address the crowd which was gathering around him and John and this man, he had one goal, and that was to direct their attention to the glory of Jesus. And that really is going to be our main idea this morning. Our priority as witnesses, is to glorify the name of Christ. That is our mission, that is our priority as kingdom people. This is the pinnacle mission of the church, to exalt Jesus as the Savior of the world and to call men and women everywhere to salvation by preaching a gospel of repentance and faith in his name. As the light of the glory of Christ has gone out into the world, We are called as his people to reflect that light into the lives of others. 
As we look at the first part of Peter's sermon this morning, which he preached uh, in the temple after this man was healed, I want to answer three questions which are relative to that key mission that we've been given as followers of Jesus. So if you have the notes, you'll see there's going to be our three points. First, we want to answer the question, why do we need to speak? Why do we need to actually use words? Then I want to answer the second question, which is, what are we meant to speak about? What are we actually meant to say? And finally, we want to answer a third question. What are we supposed to call people to do? What are we to call people to do? Well, first we want to look at the reason why we first and foremost need to speak as we are shining the light of Christ into the world. God's word always accompanies the work of God's power. God's word always accompanies the work of God's power. In Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks about how God has displayed the glory of his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature in this created world. God is not silent. Ever since he first spoke the world into motion, his power and his glory have been put on display for all to see. Day to day, God's works pour out speech as he continues to care for and keep and direct this world by the word of his power. God has revealed himself in such a way that men and women everywhere are without excuse. His glory has been made plain to them. No one in this world can plead ignorance. Nevertheless, Paul explains as we press on further in Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed against he- from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men because we, caught fast by sin, have suppressed that truth. Though God's glory is plain and evident to us, we have not honored him as God or given thanks to him, but we have become futile in our thinking, having our foolish hearts darkened. Claiming to be wise, we have behaved as fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for idols, serving and seeking after lesser things, satisfying our lust for evil by perverting God's good world to serve those wicked ends. We need God's word because it is that self-revelation that penetrates the darkness of our sin-stricken hearts. It's the word of God, John tells us, who has come and brought life to man. God's work in creation is and always has been a function of his word. We know who God is not only because we see the evidence of his power, but because he has spoken to us. Most spectacularly, he has spoken in and through his own Son, Jesus Christ, who rightfully bears the title, the Word of God. As Paul explains in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see who God is, you look at Christ. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or first. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, as we look at the reaction of this crowd in the aftermath of how Peter healed this lame man, we see what it looks like when people come into contact with God's power apart from his word. Now, I expect that no one really gave much thought to Peter and John as they stopped and spoke to this man outside the gate, even though Luke, as he describes it for us, it seems like the biggest drama that you've ever read. Maybe a glance or two came from the bystanders as they actually stopped to talk to this man. Maybe someone happened to look over at Peter as he spoke to him and took him by the hand. But what everyone who was in the temple that day couldn't help but notice was that this man, this lame man, was now in their very midst, leaping about and praising God. The power of God which made this man walk as if he had never been lame before got people's attention. They noticed it. And make no mistake, it was clear to everyone who witnessed all of this that what they were seeing was something that was only possible, something that could only be accomplished by God. They recognized they had come into contact with something significant. In fact, if we skip ahead to the discussion that the Jewish leaders had with each other, we'll see that even they recognized that the only way something like this could possibly be explained was that it could be attributed to this was God's work. What stands out about Luke's description of the reaction of this crowd, though, before Peter opened his mouth to speak, is that while they knew they were witnessing God's power, they were having a difficult time making sense of, the, of what they were seeing. Here in verse 11, Luke says that the man who was formerly lame clung to Peter and John. He was not about to leave their side. And so as he's shouting these great praises to God, everyone is gathering around them. As he leaped around, singing God's praises and bringing attention to what God had done, Luke tells us that all the people who were there, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. They couldn't believe their eyes. They all knew this man. They all knew that he had been lame for years. And now here he was, standing, walking, leaping, praising God, and and, and while it was apparent to them that God had done this, they had yet to really recognize the significance of what had taken place. In verse 12, Luke says that when Peter saw how the people were coming together, astonished to see this spectacle of God's power, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Now, this is not something that you see every day. The answer to Peter's question is obvious. Uh, They're looking and staring the way they are because they're shocked and amazed because this man, though he used to be lame, is now fully healed. And they're trying to make sense of how on earth this can be. We're all naturally attracted to power and things that amaze us. When you hear a loud boom, you want to know what it is. Uh, just the other night, there was a police car that, that pulled a car over in front of our house. And man, the instant those lights hit our wall, we thought, what is happening? And we're trying to go out and see what's going on. Uh, we know it's, it's a light. It's a police car. But man, it's just something about that attention that sucks you in. 
When people start singing all of a sudden or shouting, you want to know what's up. It's, it's impossible not to wonder what's going on. And when, when lame men start jumping around and praising God, people are going to want to come and see what's happening. How can this be possible? So it's pretty obvious why the people are shocked and amazed the way they are. We would be too, I think. But Peter's question exposes something about the crowd that's helpful for us. He shows us that while the crowd had obviously taken notice of what this, this work of power and saw that God had done something wonderful in their midst, they clearly don't understand the significance of what this miracle was intended to convey about Jesus. The crowd is here standing in awe and amazement, looking at Peter and John like they were the source of this healing. They were looking in the wrong place, looking at the mirror, thinking that it was what was producing the light that we see, when really we're intended to see the source of where this power was coming from. And that's why Peter asks this question. He's showing the crowd that they're looking in the wrong place. Look with me again at the second part of verse 12. Peter asks, Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though through our own power or piety we have made him walk? In an attempt to make sense of what they were seeing, the crowd was looking in three places, all the while missing the point. First, we see that they were looking at the work itself. A couple of weeks ago, Titus and Rebecca and our family got to go to Discovery World in Milwaukee. Uh, They had all sorts of cool exhibits, Uh, but one of them that really stood out to me was this machine that they had set up, which uh, would make these laser cutouts on foam sheets that you could then punch out and then fold together, and it would make this cool toy that you could take home with you. So you'd you'd take your your, your foam sheet, you'd put it in a little hopper, this robot would come over and little suction cups would pick it up and they would move it over uh, to a laser cutter and then before your eyes the laser would cut through the foam and you would see the outlines of this toy and then it'd be put on a conveyor belt and brought over to you at the other end to pick up. It was super cool. Now the point of that exhibit wasn't the foam which was cut. It was to show you the power of that technology, to show you the potential of a laser. If you came away from that exhibit only thinking about the foam toy, then you've really missed the point. In fact, the, the toy didn't even make it out of the, of the building with us. It ripped pretty soon after that. You know, that's what happens with a three-year-old. But there you go. You'd miss the point. Peter's question, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this was meant to call crowd, the crowd's attention from the work itself to the glory of the one in whose name it had actually been accomplished. Now, we can't fault the crowd for being amazed and astonished at what they were seeing. I think we would be too. But Peter's question, why do you wonder at this, kind of shocks us back to see the point of why this man was healed in the first place. What a tragedy it would be for these people to see this great display of God's power and then miss the glory of the one who had actually done it. This miracle is meant to point at us to something greater. It's meant to point us at the one who came to defeat sin, to rescue us from it, from death, and to make all things new. Well, the second place which the crowd was apparently looking at for, to explain the significance of this, looking for an explanation of how this is possible, was at Peter and John themselves. Peter asked them, why do you stare at us as if we've done this on our own power? Peter and John were men. They had no power to make this guy walk again. 
but they served one who could, and they healed this man in his name. Peter and John were witnesses and servants of Jesus. The power and authority that God worked through them wasn't actually theirs. It was Jesus's, and so Peter wanted the crowd to know that. The third place that we see the crowd look to for an explanation was to Peter and John's own righteousness. That's what Peter means when he talks about piety. Now Nicodemus had told John and uh, sorry, had told Jesus in John chapter 3 that he and the other religious leaders knew that he was sent from God because no one could do the things he was doing unless God was with him. Peter and John have just done something which showed that God was with them. The crowd might naturally expect, if they didn't know Peter and John already, that they were particularly righteous people and that God had honored their piety uh, in giving them this work of power. But Peter and John flatly deny that idea. There is only one who is righteous, only one whose merit can make us well, and that is Jesus Christ. So as Peter and John address this crowd, They're turning them from looking at them and from looking at the work to see Christ on his throne. That's why Peter opened his mouth. That's why he spoke. That's why he used his words to explain this great work of God's power, to lift the gaze of the crowd from this man and from John and from Peter to see the source of all this, to see the one whom God had glorified as king and savior. And we see that that too is why we must speak. The gospel is about the glory of Christ. And the power of the Holy Spirit working through God's people is intended to lift men's gaze to Jesus so that they will behold His glory and be saved from their sin. Peter teaches us that in all things, the glory of Christ must be our priority. And this is absolutely critical for the church today. Because if we lose sight of this purpose then we have lost sight of the mission that Jesus gave his church. Now, Peter, I think, warns us about two dangers here. First, he warns us about the real danger that comes when the power of God is put on display, that people may, in fact, be more enthralled with the work itself than they are with Jesus. It's important for the church not to represent the benefits of Christ's work to people as if they are ultimate. You can have a deep, good desire for good things, for the good things that God gives in His mercy and grace, without actually having any real desire for Him. And that, my friends, is the essence of what idolatry is. It's loving the things which God gives more than Him, who is the giver. The crowds who followed Jesus were amazed by what He did, but they did not love Him. For if they had, they would not have crucified Him. They would not have been offended by him when he said, If any man would be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. They would not have recoiled from him when he said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So friends, heed Peter's warning here. Be careful about loving God's good gifts more than you love God himself. The second thing that Peter warns us here is to flee making the work that God has called us to do 
about us. Flee making the work God has called you to do about you. The beauty and the usefulness of a mirror is in what it reflects. This is one of the most dangerous things about ministry because we tend to think that it is, we tend to make it about us. We tend to call it our ministry. We tend to heap burdens on ourselves thinking that this, the success of this mission depends wholly on me or depends wholly on how this person will respond to this when really it's all about Christ. We tend to make our ministry about us and then rather than reflecting Christ, we end up reflecting ourselves. We end up trying to create God in our own image. Peter reminds us that what we have been called to do is really God working in and through us for his good pleasure. And so we're called to do what he calls us to do, looking to him. Now Peter spoke to the crowd the way he did because they were looking in the wrong place. They were looking at this man or they were looking at Peter and John and Peter's message was simply this. No, no. Look at my Lord. Look at my Lord. And that brings us to our second point this morning to answer the question, what are we actually supposed to speak about? Well, in verses 13 through 16, Peter erases away all of the crowd's confusion to show them what this work of God's power actually meant for them. In verse 16 specifically, he explains to them that Jesus is the reason that this man was healed. But before he gets there, he shows the crowd why Jesus is able to make this man well in the first place. So his goal here is to show them who Jesus is. And he does that by laying out five kingly titles which belong to him. In, the, in verse 13, we see our first one, which is uh, that Peter establishes Jesus as the hope of their fathers. He is the hope of their fathers. Now, this is important because it provides us with the framework to see how Jesus actually fulfilled God's covenant promise to bless Abraham and to bless all the families of the earth through a coming offspring. Uh, the call of Abraham, if you remember back to Genesis, brought him out of the land of his fathers, out of service to false gods, into a covenant relation with the, relationship with the one true God. And then it was a covenant which was handed down to Abraham's descendants. And their hope in the coming of an offspring was actually realized in Jesus. Notice how Peter says that God glorified Jesus. That glory belongs to no one else because Jesus is that promised offspring as we read about when we studied Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. By starting this way, Peter is putting Jesus in perspective for the people as the fulfillment of God's promise of blessing which he had made long ago. Now the second kingly title which Peter uses, uh, which he announces uh, that Jesus holds, is that he is God's servant. So he is the fulfillment of the promise the fathers were looking for. He's also God's servant. Now this really is a kingly title that we could spend literally all day on. By calling Jesus this, Peter is indicating how Jesus had, had, had come to do the will of God as a servant does the will of his master. But he also says that God has exalted Jesus as this servant. And in doing so, Peter is indicating that Jesus is in fact the servant of the Lord who was spoken of by Isaiah, in whom God says, My soul delights. 
In Isaiah 52, verse 13, God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As we read the rest of Isaiah 52 and then Isaiah 53, we realize that the way that God exalted his beloved servant was by making him the savior and redeemer of his people from their sins. So besides showing that Jesus was the fulfillment of the faith of their fathers, Peter is also identifying Jesus as the servant king who bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressions. Only a handful of men in the, in, are called the servant of the Lord in the Old Testament. Moses, Joshua, even David. But we see in this work that Jesus excelled them all by the way that he served. He is the son who became a suffering servant for us all. And for that, Philippians 2 tells us that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the third title which Peter ascribes to Jesus is that he was innocent. He was innocent. Peter goes back in time a few months and reminds the crowd how Pilate, a Gentile ruler, had actually determined and tried to release Jesus because he found no fault in him. But because of the crowd's demands, ultimately because Pilate was afraid of them and what they were going to say to Caesar and how that was going to affect him, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. Not because he was guilty, but because of his own fear. Jesus' innocence matters because he had to be blameless in order for his death to atone, to, to make payment for our sins. Once again, we read in Isaiah how God, God's exalted servant would be oppressed and afflicted for our sin like a, like a lamb who is led to slaughter. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Only a perfect sacrifice could bring that sort of atonement. And so when Peter declares Jesus' innocence to the crowd, he shows why his death and resurrection was effective to remove sin and to destroy the works of Satan. Now, the fourth title that Peter addresses Jesus by is the Holy and Righteous One. Now, this really is a unique title. We don't find it really mentioned anywhere else. Uh, it, it's, it's something that is specifically used here. And it speaks as much to Jesus' purity, to his innocence, as it does to his divinity. To be holy is to be set apart. To be righteous is to be blameless. Though when God made his covenant with Israel, he called them to be holy as he himself is holy, we see in the Old Testament how time and time again they fell short of that calling. Uh, Psalms 14 says this, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So by calling Jesus by this title, Peter was indicating to the crowd how Jesus had been set apart by God, how he did in fact measure up to God's standard of holiness. This title puts their rejection of Jesus in perspective, and it also shows us 
why Jesus alone is able to secure salvation through his death and resurrection for us. Now the fifth title, which Peter uses in this, this first part of his sermon to describe Jesus, it comes to us in verse 15 where Peter actually calls him the author of life. Now this is a title which can only be held by God alone since God is the creator and sustainer of all things. So this really is an incredible thing for Peter to say about Jesus. And yet it's not so surprising to us given that Jesus is the Son of God. In the opening of his gospel, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If we go again to Colossians chapter 1, we see how Paul addresses Jesus saying that he is the image of the invisible God, meaning he is by nature God himself. And as such, he rules as the firstborn of all creation. He is over it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and they were created for him. That is what it means for Jesus to be the author of life. It exists by him. It exists through him. It exists for him. And it truly is something that for Peter to stare into the eyes of these people in this crowd and to say to them, you killed the author of life. All of these titles which Peter used to describe Jesus are like faces on a diamond. Uh, we turn it this way and that way and we see the light of its glory reflected in different ways so that we marvel at the full picture of its glory. The crowd which had gathered around Peter and John here in the temple had come together because they knew there was something amazing that had happened. They saw something of the light of the glory of Christ being put on display for them. But Peter's sermon is very careful to elevate their eyes from this display of this glory to see the actual beauty and majesty of Jesus in whose name this man was healed. He's lifting their eyes from the earth to heaven. Now we live in a world in which the glory of God has been put on display for us each and every day from the rising of the sun to the breath that we breathe to the way that God keeps and sustains us, providing for even the smallest needs we have, all according to his great mercy and love. The calling of the church is not merely to point people to the goodness of what God has provided, but it is actually to point people to the glory of him who has given all those things. So what are we actually called or what are we actually supposed to call people to do? Well, so when we look at it in our third point here, the gospel is a message that is objectively true. It is true whether you accept it or not. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. All things exist by him and for him. He is righteous and good as the judge of all the earth. We have, in fact, sinned against him. We deserve his wrath. We will face judgment on the final day before him. And unless our sin is atoned for, we have no hope in it of ourselves. God, in his great love, has sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve. He raised him up on the third day, according to the scriptures, 
And, have, and God has now exalted him as Savior and Lord of all, so that all who trust in him may not fear the grave, but may share in his life eternal. That is the gospel. It is a message which we're called to witness to. But it's also a message that calls for a response from us. As Peter preached to the crowd, he not only helped them see the glory of Jesus in whose name this man had been healed, but he actually helped the crowd see that they needed saving too. Notice how Peter compares and contrasts all the ways which God exalted Jesus uh, to the way that they had treated him. While God exalted Jesus as the hope of their fathers, they had acted faithlessly and rejected him, saying, oh, he's just merely a prophet. He's a charlatan. What good can come out of Nazareth? While Jesus had come as the exalted servant of God, doing the works of God, they had rejected him as a blasphemer and denied the holy righteous one. While God made all things through the Son, they, on the other hand, had killed the author of life. Even when God confirmed the effect of Jesus' sacrifice by raising him up on the third day, this crowd stood and marveled in the temple and wondered to themselves, how could a lame man be made well? Now, Peter's sermon is pretty sharp. He didn't sugarcoat anything on this day any more than he sugarcoated anything when he preached at Pentecost. And you've really got to, I think, as you read what Peter says here, you really got to appreciate how God was at work in the hearts of the people who heard these words. Because I think we'll, we'll all agree that under normal circumstances, this probably would have gotten you stoned or beaten to death right on the spot. This crowd would have known who Jesus was. Some of them who were in this crowd may have heard him preach and teach. At minimum, they had heard the reports of the miracles he had done. And undoubtedly, some of them had been in, this, in the crowd which demanded that Pilate put him to death. Now, once again, they're staring at the clear evidence of the glory of Jesus. They're staring at this confirmation of his power, evidence that he truly is the Christ, the Son of God. The things that Peter says about Jesus here ring true because they've been backed up with this amazing work of Jesus' power. And so Peter is very clear as he addresses the crowd. We are witnesses of all these things. And his name, the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and the presence of you all. You cannot come away from Peter's sermon not marveling at the glory of who Jesus is and the power of his name. What, what does this act prove? It proves that Jesus is who Peter said he was. It proves that Jesus' power could not be broken by the grave. As God's chosen one, holy and righteous, Jesus came as a servant the author of life who was rejected by men but was approved by God had received authority to take up his life again and through that life he gives new life to men. Peter couldn't be clearer. The evidence of who Jesus is and what he came to do was staring the crowd in the face. And while it might feel cruel to us to bring up the way that they had rejected Christ, it was necessary because just as this man needed to be healed from his lameness, so they all needed to be healed from their sin as well. Peter makes it clear 
The credit for all of this went to Christ. It was by faith in the name of Jesus that this man had been made whole. The gospel is the true message of who Jesus is and of what he has done. But it's also a message that demands a response. To repent and believe. To turn from sin and to turn to God. To approach the throne in the grace that Jesus gives. To come and to be part of this kingdom. Though you were his enemy, he will make you his friend. And he will receive you in, not only as a servant, but as a son and as a daughter, adopted into his house. Come and be made whole. Come and for the first time in your life, really live. That's the gospel call. And Peter lays down a pattern in this sermon which we're meant to follow as fellow witnesses to the glory of Christ. The purpose of our witness, the purpose of our mission is to live in the life of Christ who is our King so that others might see and hear the glory and the power of His name so that they too may repent and believe and have a rescue from their sins. That is what it means to shine as lights in a dark world. In John chapter 20, verse 30, he explains why he wrote his gospel. And I love it because he's so... He's, this is the reason if you've hit the end of this book and you're not at this point, you need to read it again. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That is our goal. To glory in our Redeemer and to let the light of His glory shine through us into a dark world. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for the way that You have so powerfully worked in and through Jesus. Father, it staggers the imagination to think that you would love sinners such as we are, that you would go to such lengths to show love to us, that you would decide to exalt your Son as the Christ by sending him to the cross. And we thank you for the way that you did not abandon him to the grave, but raised him up so that all who have faith in him might also have life and light in the light of his glory. Father, as we think about this week, we think about our friends, our neighbors, our family, those who you have placed in our path who do not know Christ, whose eyes have not been opened up to his beauty, who live as beneficiaries of your gracious work in this world, but have not yet bowed their knee to Christ. We pray, Father, that you would open their hearts. That even if they are in here this morning, that if someone is here and has not bowed the name, bowed the knee to Jesus, that they would see their need for salvation, and they would come to Him and live. Father, we believe Your Word, we submit ourselves to it, and we ask that by the power of Your Spirit, You would work in ways that we could not even imagine to bring glory and glory and glory to the holy name of Jesus. And we pray all this in his glorious name. Amen. All right, well, at this time, we'll sing our final song, our song of response. Jared makes it in here on time. Linda, is he on his way?
Can you go get him? Okay. All right. Well, if you would like to go ahead and stand, we're going to sing our final song.